Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. Merry Christmas. That was, that was a little weak. Um, all right. So, thank you. Awesome. I, uh, I'm glad you're here, Trevor. All right. So um, this morning we are in Luke. Uh, we've been, well, last week, I guess, uh, and then next week we'll be in another gospel. But last week we were in Matthew, this week we're in Luke, next week we'll be in John. We thought it'd be fun to, uh, to look at the nativity story in each of these gospels. Mark doesn't really talk about it, and even John, the way he talks about Jesus' birth is a little more abstract than we might expect uh, traditionally from things like Matthew or Luke. Uh, So this morning we're in Luke. We're in Luke chapter 2, and I'll be focusing primarily on verses 8 through 38. Uh, The pages are on the screen. That's awesome. I always forget that. But if you uh, need a Bible or you have one of the Bibles from under the seat in front of you, those are the pages you can go to, odds are, to find the exact reference we're going for today. So with that, I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll get right to it. Uh, I'd like to get through a lot of things here, so let's do this. Let me pray. Father, we come to you this morning uh, grateful for this time of year and um, grateful for the opportunities you've given us to gather together as your people and think uh, deliberately about the birth of your son and your dwelling among us, living among us in a way um, that, that is just unbelievable. You are the God of the universe. You have made all things. You created us. You keep us alive. You provide us with all that we need. You know all things. You can do all things. Um, and, and yet, you, you came to be with us. Um, which is even more amazing because of how small we are. And in the grand scheme of things, it would seem that we are probably, probably nearly invisible in terms of what is truly important when you are so great and we are so sinful and oftentimes arrogant toward you and ignorant of you, uh, willfully even. And so as we approach this text, as we think about what it meant, what it means that you have come to be with us through your Son, give us hope through your word to overcome this chasm of our smallness and your greatness. Help us. Help us to find joy and hope in the coming of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 38. And before I really start reading that, I do want to give a bit of a disclaimer. The word, well, there's a particular word that I'll be using this morning that... uh, can sound sort of offensive maybe to our ears. We don't really like this word a lot of times, given depends on its context in which we use it, I guess. But I'll be saying one word in particular a lot this morning. That word is condescend, or condescends, or the noun form, condescension, right? Uh, and, and I'll be using that word in reference to God and how he relates to us, his creation, we don't like the word condescend. We don't like condescension. We, we, we don't like it when people condescend to us oftentimes. Um, but we did sing it this morning, and maybe you caught that and thought about it and wondered, wait, is that the right word for it? Is that, can we really say Jesus condescends to us? That sounds arrogant and unkind and, and maybe a little haughty of him, right? So when we talk about condescending, sometimes it, it triggers some emotions and responses in us that that maybe we feel like, I don't know if I like that word very much, or I don't really know if I like it the way it's being used right now. Um, but but th- let's think a little more deeply about it. When we think about people, 
condescending to us. Uh, we, we, we think of them looking down on us, maybe, or, or withholding information that if they would just tell us, yeah, we could understand this thing, same as you. Uh, when we think of people condescending to us, usually we have an unfavorable opinion of that because people are our peers. They're our equals. Even, even the most important and powerful person is still, in the sight of God, our, our equal in value and in worth, uh, are equal in being created after the image of God, right? So when people condescend to us, that rightly oftentimes triggers a, a negative response. But when God condescends to us, there is a, a difference. And, I, and I'm sure you would agree that when God condescends, that, that's the only way we can describe how he relates to us and interacts with us. Right, like, like I was praying, he is so infinite and so great and so mighty, so good, righteous, holy, perfect, unblemished. He knows all things. He can do whatever he pleases. And whatever pleases him is, by definition, good. And you can't say that about ourselves. Certainly not all the time and not in every aspect. You, you can't say that about yourself or about me or about anyone you know. Even, even the greatest, kindest, most godly person. You, you can't say that about. And so when God relates to us, all, all that he can do, and the only way we can describe it is that he is coming down to us. That he, he, he stoops down to speak to us or 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 see what's going on, or to care about us. It's the only way we can describe it. And it's not because God is arrogant. It's because God is God. For him to speak to us, or, or, or consider our needs, or look after us, or love us in any way, is undeserved. It's not arrogance. It's condescension, and, and it's good. I think we can agree that when God pays attention to us, it, it's a good thing. Without that, we have no hope. The text this morning, it, it has so much to do with that very idea, that God has condescended to us, that he has come down, literally, to us in, in the form of Jesus, in the form of a baby in a manger. So, I'll read the text, but as I do that, I, I want you to just have in the back of your mind this idea that God condescends to us, and this is not a bad thing, it's, it's a good and glorious truth. He condescends to us for his glory and for our happiness, for our joy. And I think you'll see that as we work through the text together. So let me read to us. It's a bit long, and uh, so buckle up. All right. Luke 2, verse 8. In the same region... There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. 
At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. All right, that was was a lot. Thanks for bearing with me. So in this text, in Luke 2, we witness God's condescension in in several different ways. Comes in different forms. And and it comes through episodes with or interactions with three people, three groups of people. You have the shepherds, right? You have Simeon, uh, an older man who who is in the temple and and there worshiping the Lord. And then and then you have an older woman named Anna who by this account is a godly woman waiting also for Jesus to come, waiting for the Messiah. So, so you have these three groups of people, three types of people, and, and, and different ways then that the Lord condescends through his Son uh, to, to each of them, or to all of them. And, and so we'll, we'll look at that then. Um, first of all, God condescends uh, and and a couple in three different ways here at least that I can see. But but the first is that God condescends by revealing Himself. Uh, it, as I was reading, you you may have picked up on this. If you read it a few times, you'll definitely see it. Uh, the word revelation or reveal or revealing revealed that word comes up quite a lot in this in this text actually it's it's interesting it's a very common word it happens in just about every uh every paragraph and if it's not the word reveal it's the word you know saw or or heard or knew or found out something to that effect indicating that something that was unknown is now known by somebody or 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 revealed to someone right god reveals himself this is a critical way that God condescends to the people here as well as to us. We see this happen, first of all, with, with the angels. He reveals himself to the shepherds through angels. There's not a, a whole lot to, to say about that. It, it's, it's a fact. It's true. It happened. I, I think when we read this text, and, and especially when we think about in, in the context of the Christmas season, we, we don't really give angels kind of the credit that they're due. We, we tend to read about this and think of the angels, and, and we, we sort of gloss over, at least that's my temptation, is that I would move past it pretty quickly. They're angels. That's what, I mean, think about it. You, you think about when you hear this text, Linus with his security blanket speaking it from a stage in the Charlie Brown special, 
right? You're not thinking about angels who are so terrifying. They, they have to, to help the shepherds through this event that they're experiencing. No, oh, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. That's my other head. And here's my fourth head. And, you know, all these wings. No, they're not. They, they're real. There are angels here. They are speaking to the shepherds. And it is incredible. This isn't the stuff of myth. This isn't Lord of the Rings. This is real. This really happened. God really communicated to the shepherds a message that they had not heard and would have had no clue of, except that God sent angels to communicate to them directly from God himself. It's incredible. It's incredible. The condescension. God sees these shepherds. He determines that that he wants them to know about the birth of Jesus. And what does he do to ensure that it happens? Nothing short but sending his very own emissaries, the angels themselves, his messengers to come and communicate this truth to them. Again, this is not a myth. This really happened. It's amazing. It's incredible. It says a lot about God's love for them and for us that he would choose to do this in this way for them. All right, he, he reveals himself further. It doesn't stop there. He reveals himself through the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. We see this especially in the account about Simeon, verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. You saw the word revealed there, right? And then, and then you see how that comes about. It's through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit reveals to Simeon that he will actually see the Messiah, the, the, the anointed one, the Savior. He will meet this person that he has been waiting to see his whole life. He'll get to see him. The Holy Spirit tells him this. 1 Corinthians 2 10 through 12 says this, these things, the gospel in particular, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. If you thought angels were miraculous and incredible and hard to believe, how do you explain the, the third person of the Trinity revealing something so critical and important to a man named Simeon? A godly man, no doubt. A man longing for this truth to be revealed to him. Absolutely. But that doesn't qualify him to learn about it. And just because he wants to hear it doesn't mean he gets to. And yet God chooses to send the Holy Spirit upon this man so that this man might see Jesus and recognize him for who he is, which is not always a given, by the way. The Holy Spirit reveals this to him, comes to him, tells him, speaks to him so clearly. You won't die before you see the Messiah that you've been waiting for. That's a great, that's a great thing to know. If the one thing you want to happen before you die is assured you by the Holy Spirit himself, it's a good place to be, right? And so God reveals himself through angels. He reveals himself through the Holy Spirit. Here, He reveals himself through Jesus, his son. I think we, we get this, but Simeon, and his, his, all he can do is, is sort of sing. And, and he says in verse 32, he says, well, verse 31, you have prepared, um, well, let's start in verse 30. My eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Revelation, you saw that. And for glory to your people, Israel. He, he's holding Jesus. Yeah. He's holding Jesus, and he says, I, I've seen your salvation. Salvation isn't just for Jews, it's also for Gentiles. 
I've seen, I've seen your salvation. I've seen your promised plan. I've seen what you set forth to do. The one that you've been telling us about. The one that is to come. I've seen him. God reveals himself to, to Simeon and, and to the shepherds and, and to Anna through, through his son as well. Uh, Hebrews 1.3, it, it says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. It says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is no less than God himself. God reveals himself to us through his son, Jesus. The God reveals himself to us through Jesus Christ. And we can know him. We can can see what God is like through Jesus, through his example, through his words. I hope you're seeing that that all of this is in it's incredibly miraculous. It's it's, unbel- it's unbelievable. You know, there's a reason why so many want to discredit the Bible by saying that it's just it's just myth. This can't possibly be true. From a logical perspective, how can you believe what is written here? These stories have to be legends or fabricated in some way. But I think that only reinforces this notion that what is taking place here really is, in a sense, unbelievable. It's unbelievable to us that the God of the universe would reveal himself to us at all, let alone in these ways. Now, doubtless some of you have thought, I've never met an angel, at least not aware of it. Um, I have never heard an audible voice of God through the Holy Spirit, or, or, and I've certainly never seen Jesus face to face. If you have, please let me know. We need to talk about a few things. You may be saying that, thinking about that. that this, is, this is great. This is great for them, uh, but I, I don't have that experience. The beauty of it, though, is that God doesn't stop there. Uh, he, he reveals himself to us, uh, moreover, through his word, through the Bible. And, and it's, even, it's even alluded to somewhat in this, this text itself. Um, we see that, that Simeon and Anna are both eager and anticipating the, uh, the, the consolation of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem. Uh, these two concepts, these aren't things that Anna and Simeon just made up. You know, just pulled out of the sky as things they wanted to grab a hold of and put their whole life's hope and effort into. These are things that they knew about, learned about, heard about, and were concerned with learning more of. And, and, and these are things that they learned about through the Bible, through God's Word, especially the Old Testament. And, and then through the, the teaching of it to them, through their religious leaders and, and, and through those who, who, uh, who read it to them and spoke about it to them. But, but more, more directly, more specifically, we, we know in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is God-breathed. The Bible is no less than the revelation of God to us today, right here and now. And so how, how do we respond to God's revelation of himself? We, we think about the angels, and we can divorce ourselves from that because that's probably not going to happen to any of us in our lifetime, not without some sort of bizarre occurrences. Uh, and, and we can think about maybe Simeon hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and certainly the Holy Spirit communicates to us and, and, and dwells inside of those who have faith in Jesus. That's not up for question. But our experience is probably not going to look like Simeon. Just because it's in the Bible and has happened in the Bible doesn't mean that it's the norm for all people everywhere, right? So... So then, obviously, like I've said, we, we're not going to meet Jesus face-to-face in this life right now. That's something we long for and look forward to. Uh, but the way God reveals himself to us is through his word. We, we can do something we've, with that. We, we can respond to that. So how do we respond to his word? What, what do we do? And, and 
We see several examples of people who respond to the revelation of God to them. We see the shepherds here and how they respond when God reveals himself to them. When he reveals the message of Jesus' birth, he, they, they respond in a few ways. They, they hasten to the place where he is. They, they, don't, they don't meander there, find themselves there after a couple of days of thinking about it. They, they hear it, they're blown away, they rush to the scene. They want to see what is being spoken of. The, the shepherds also glorify God. They, they, they end up glorifying and praising God after they've seen everything and heard everything. and They're, they're just dumbfounded by it all. They Eventually, uh, we see them praising God. See that in particular in verses 16 and 20. Simeon, what does he do when, when he receives this revelation of God through the Holy Spirit? You, you will see him. And then when he holds Jesus in his arms and knows not only that he's, that he's seen the salvation of God, but that he's actually holding the salvation of God in his, in his arms, what does he do? He, all he can do is bless God in verse 28. He walks away blessing God. He holds Jesus and, and blesses his, his Savior. It's an incredible thing to think about. Anna, so devout and, and godly and God-fearing and eager for the gospel truth, she, she worships in the temple. She fasts. She prays. She gives thanks to God. She speaks of him to everyone around her. These are the ways that these, these men and women in this text respond when God reveals himself to them. This is how they respond. And, and, I, and I ask, how do, how do we respond when God reveals himself to us through his word? How do we respond? Do, do we hasten to the word of God? Do we sprint to it because we want, to, we want to hear what God has for us? We want to know what he's talking about. We want to see this great, glorious, good news. Do we hasten? Do we, do we glorify God as we study his word? Do we praise God for the things that we find there? Do we bless God as we learn more about who he is and how glorious and wonderful he is? Do we worship him? Do we fast in response to his word? Do we pray in response to his word? Do we give thanks to God for the things that we read and learn about here, about who he is and and who we are and the plan he's got for us to save us from who we are? Do Do we speak of him? Do we share this message with those around us? This is great and glorious. It's the the word of God. It is his revelation of himself to us. What is our reaction? What's our response to this? I'm tempted just to snap my face. Snap out of it. Wake up. Don't Don't be a cynic. Don't be a skeptic. Don't practically void the gospel, the Bible, out of your life by just sort of writing it off as important things to know and to read and good for a Christian to pay attention to on a regular basis, but not something that is actually the revelation of God himself to us. It is. Wake up to that. Wake up. Don't ignore this truth. He's revealed himself to us through his word. That should change the way we respond to him. It should change the way we respond to his word. It should. It should. I speak from experience. Oftentimes feeling somewhat guilty myself for not devoting my time and energy to the word of God like I should. But that's just the thing. It, it, it's not just something to be done for its own sake. This is the revelation of God. God has given us knowledge of himself and of the gospel and of what is true, and here it is. We should, we should hasten to it ourselves. We have God's revelation of himself to us written down and rereadable and understandable. So when we read the Bible, we can expect God to reveal himself through his word to us through the help of the Holy Spirit and And in particular, as we read the Bible with purpose, the sense of intentionality, coming to it not as just a 
a holy book or a great thing to know or, or to have in the back of your mind. But, but no, if we come to it knowing that, that just like the shepherds heard about the gospel from the, the angels, that, that we too are experiencing no less of a miracle by being able to open up the Bible and hear directly from God himself as we study it with purpose. One of the things I encourage you to do in the new year, and this isn't like a law, but, but you know, a Bible reading plan is not the worst thing in the world to have sitting around. It, it can, can spur you on to read when you otherwise might not. And then as you read, that in turn produces in you this desire to read more. Because as God reveals himself to you through his word, it, it produces a hunger for more of that very thing. Uh, we, we have actually some, some reading plans in the resource room. We just got them in. I'd encourage you to go check that out and grab one. Um, they're, they're pretty well done, and it'll take you through the whole Bible in a year. Or you could split it up and say, I'll do this over two years or four years or, or whatever the case may be. But, but read the Bible with purpose. Read the Bible together with others, with other believers, with your family. Read it out loud. I'm not kidding. That sometimes can help. Uh, not as if you're the voice of God, but just as you hear words, it hits your brain differently than when you just read with your eyes. And read the Bible as you pray, as you seek God, that he would reveal himself to us even further through his word, that he would confirm what we're reading and protect us from silly, erroneous thoughts as we read his Bible. God condescends to us by revealing himself to us. God condescends to us, secondly, by humbling himself as a human, and not just as a human, but as a baby. Have you ever thought about that? That God came to earth as a man, as, as a helpless, defenseless, hungry, crying, diaper-changed-needing baby. God humbled himself. He was born in poverty uh, when Mary and Joseph take him to the temple, take Jesus to the temple to offer their sacrifice for their firstborn son. Um, they, they give two turtle doves. And, and that's a provision made in Leviticus 12.8 for those who can't afford what is really actually expected or required. You may not be able to afford this sacrifice. In that case, you can give two turtle doves, two pigeons, something like that. Um, Jesus was not just born as a human. He was not just born as a baby. He was born in poverty. He was placed in a feeding trough. Um, he was heralded, uh, heralded, that's a hard word to say, to shepherds. His birth announcement didn't go to the rich and famous and powerful and popular and beautiful. It, it went to a, a band of uh, nomadic, dirty, filthy, uh, sheep-smelling dudes in the middle of the night. Think about that. It could have gone to anyone. Um, my, my son is almost a year old, and this time last year, we were getting ready for him to be born, and we were so excited, so eager, so anticipating that moment of him being born and in this world, and, and finally everybody would be uh, less sick around the house and so forth. At any rate, when he finally got here, uh, it, it, was, it was awesome. It was a great moment. I'm, you know, many of you have experienced that, and it's, it's, uh, it's really unbelievable, actually, when you think about it. It's kind of so one minute he's there, and then he's... Anyway, so um, my response, as soon as he was born, and after a few things had been taken care of, was to immediately grab my phone and, and let people know. Uh, I called folks, and I texted plenty more. Uh, but here's the thing. I, I didn't text everybody. Uh, some of you, I'm ashamed to say, did not get a message when my son was born. Hey, Quentin's here, right? I, I didn't have to tell everybody. I, I, I could, I guess, theoretically have told a lot more people than I did, but the reality is I, I told those that I wanted to hear it. I told those who I knew would care and want to know about the birth of my son. And so when God reveals his son and the birth of his son, who does he choose? He could have told anybody, right? I mean, we talk about text messaging. He could have sent it all over the world in the sky. The stars could have aligned to make a message for everyone to know that Jesus had been born, but he didn't do that. He told a group of shepherds. That's humbling. The God of the universe subjected himself to being announced to a band of shepherds on a hillside. He was held by his own creation. In verse 28, you saw Simeon holding Jesus. 
not making light of this, but what if Simeon had dropped him? Have you thought about that? Uh, Jesus subjected himself to being held by uh, a, a fallible, imperfect human being who could have slipped and fallen or something to that effect. But at any rate, Jesus, he was held. He put himself in the care of others and, and in the most helpless and defenseless position you could be. Um, and, and finally, Jesus was destined to suffer and die. God humbled himself by subjecting himself to that trajectory. Verse 34 and 35, Simeon tells Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fallen rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. A sword will pierce through your own soul also. And, and that's a vague reference to the fact that, that what will happen to this baby will absolutely crush Mary's heart. We know what is coming. We know the end of Luke from the beginning. And, and we know that Jesus was destined to suffer and die. Philippians 2, 3 through 8 hits on this. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God condescends to us by revealing himself, and God condescends to us by humbling himself. He stoops down, and he comes to us, and this is how he does it. And when you consider who he is, it's amazing. Thirdly, God condescends to us by loving the undeserving, the lowly, and the meek. First uh, John 4, 9 and 10 says that in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but rather that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a great word for uh, being made right with somebody. When God propitiates us, when he uh, makes propitiation for our sins, he turns uh, enemies into friends. And this is what he does through Jesus by sending his son in the likeness of man and for sin. Uh, he, he, he loves us. This is, what, this is how we know what love is. I mentioned this. There's no power or fame here among the people that we've spoken of. We're talking about shepherds. We're talking about an older gentleman who's, by his own admission, is thinking that this is probably the last big thing that will happen to him before he dies. Now, granted, he could have been 10 and said that and been right, but the impression we get is that he's, he's older, right? We know that Anna is in her 80s. And I think the point here is that these aren't the cultural VIPs. Rather, these, these are people who, unless God intervenes, they, have, they will have no clue what's going on. They have no access. You notice he doesn't go to the religious leaders. He doesn't go to King Herod. If anything, he's trying to avoid them. He goes to people who... They have no access to this news. The shepherds are on a hill by themselves with their sheep, and I don't think their sheep are going to have much to say about it. Verse 32, Simeon mentions that this is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That's a new thought. Up until this point, the Messiah was for the Jews. At least that's what they thought. But people started to realize, because God revealed it to them, through his word, through the spirit, that, in fact, the, the Messiah is not just for Jews only, but also for Gentiles. This is the whole premise of Romans. If you 
Read that letter. So what does it say about God that he shared the news of his son with people like these, with shepherds, with an elderly man and an octogenarian? What does it say about God that he would do that instead of going to the high and powerful and, and rich and wealthy and, and beautiful and famous? What, what does it say? I think one thing we can draw from this is that God certainly loves these people. He loves them. That's the only only way we we can understand this, is that God just loves them. They don't deserve it. They haven't bought it. They can't pay for it. God just loves them, and he's telling them about his son. So to connect the dots here, if any of us have heard the gospel, if any of us have read God's word or heard the gospel faithfully preached, um, in a sense, uh, God, God is loving us. But, I, I like to think about this. I mean, do, do we take God's love for granted? I mean, does that not amaze you? Is that, that thought that God loves you, is that not astounding to you? Think about how undeserved, unrestrained, unexpected God's love for us is. Romans 5, 8 says that while we were still weak, excuse me, 5, 6 through 8, says that while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for perhaps a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's incredibly loving of God that he would reveal himself to anyone. None of us deserve it. All of us certainly deserve to be kept in the dark. We're God's enemies, right? Um, who tells their enemies the, the greatest truth they could possibly know for their own salvation and the ending of our enmity would get, who would do that? Someone who loves those whom he tells. And so it is a loving of God to reveal his Savior to them and to us, but we can't gloss over verse 14. When I say that God loves us in a sense, I don't mean that he loves us to the point that all then are saved automatically because he's told us about the gospel. He loves us. We must all be in right standing with God. What is there to worry about? No. We see in verse 14, the angels declare it so clearly, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. He's he's not pleased with everyone in the same way. He's not pleased with all of us. That is true. Um, We know that Christ has been revealed to us. If we've heard the gospel, if we've read his word, we, we have experienced and witnessed the revelation of Jesus and who he is and what he's come to do. Uh, but at the same time, verse 35, uh, Simeon points this out, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed, just like Christ has been revealed to us, so our hearts are also revealed to God. He, he knows what our hearts look like and the state that they are in and And so because of that, the fact is that God is pleased with none of us. Which gives verse 14 a bit of a hollow ring to it, if that's true. If, if God is pleased with no one, then the fact that there will be peace among those with whom he is pleased, that's something of an empty promise. But later in Luke, especially in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, we see that there is one with whom God is actually pleased. And It'll come as no surprise. Uh, Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son with you. I am well pleased. The Lord is pleased with Jesus. And so then, for us, the only solution is that we must be found in him. If God is to be pleased with us, as verse 14 
says, then, then it must be because we, we have to be found in the only one with whom God actually is pleased, Jesus. Paul talks about this in Philippians 3, 8 and 9. He says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This, this is how God is pleased with anyone, is, is because he is pleased with Jesus. And, and when we are found in him, that pleasure transfers to our account as well. Because the righteousness of Jesus is made our own by faith. The love of God then is made ours too. This is what it means for God to condescend to us by revealing himself to us, by humbling himself and coming to us in the form that he did, and by loving those who don't deserve it. Loving them enough to tell them the most important thing that they could know. And so, finally, we are called to imitate God. See, what is condescension for God? And, and rightly so, God, the only direction he can go toward us is down. What, what is condescension for God is, is the responsibility of the Christian. We owe it to our fellow man to imitate God in these ways. God doesn't owe us anything, and yet we do owe all that we know and see we, we owe the imitation of God to them. And we do this by revealing Christ. Just as God reveals himself to us, we too are called to reveal him to others. Verse 38, we see Anna. She gives thanks to God and she begins to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She receives this revelation and turns around and proceeds to reveal Jesus to the rest of the people that she knows. We are called to humble ourselves as God in Christ humbled himself. We're called to humble ourselves before God. This is Anna's example where she, uh, where she faithfully uh, obeys God and, and worships and fasts and prays. We're, we're called to humble ourselves before God in the same sort of way. We're also called to humble ourselves before men. In Luke 2, 5, uh, and 6, or, excuse me, Philippians 2, 5, and 6, says that, have this mind among yourselves, right, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We're called to humble ourselves as well. So we see here in Luke a picture then of what Paul is talking about in Philippians. What does it look like to humble ourselves like Christ? It looks like coming to, to the world in the form of a helpless baby. None of us can imitate that exactly, but I think the spirit of it is the same. We're also called to imitate God by loving others, especially the undeserving, the lowly, the meek, and people that we might not people that we might think are, are inferior to us, even. Um, 1 John 4, 11 and 12 says that, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Likewise, in Matthew 25, 35 through 40, Jesus is speaking of uh, the, the, the sort of end of the world encounter with the king of the universe and how he will respond to those who claimed to know him. And it says this, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Don't gloss over this example of love, as if this is something that we receive but are not called in turn to give. We're called to imitate God in this by loving others. This is how we show the world what Christ is like, by imitating him. 
and in all these ways in which he has condescended to us, we have a responsibility then to act toward one another and especially toward the world. This is not a chore, but this is actually the overflow of a joy-filled heart that sees God's condescension toward him and rejoices. And I think the only thing we can do then is pray that God would instill this in us. And so I will pray, and and if the band, if you want to make your way on up, there are a few things I I would like to pray for. Um, Because God condescends to us so that we would then joyfully lift him up, there are four things we we should pray. That we'd hasten like the shepherds, to God's revelation of himself in his word. That we'd reveal Christ to others in our words and in our actions, just as he has revealed himself to us. That we'd humble ourselves, laying down our preferences and rights for the good of others and the glory of God. And today we have many opportunities for that. And that we'd love the lowly, and those we consider inferior to ourselves. Let me pray for us. God, we, uh, we are grateful that you have bridged the gap between us on your own initiative. But we know that it did not come uh, without cost. That it did, in fact, require you to stoop, to come down to us. We know that that's metaphor, but we also know that you are so great and mighty, and we are on the opposite end of that spectrum. The only way we can think about it is that you would come down to us, that you would condescend to us. And so I pray that we would joyfully lift you up, that as we see you come to us in humility, that we would come to you with humility. Help us to to run, to sprint to your revelation of yourself through your word. Help us Turn and reveal Christ to others, just as you have done to us by your grace. Help us to humble ourselves, to lay down what we think of as our rights and our privileges, and seek the good of, of those around us, especially their eternal good. And help us to love those who are lowly and weak and despised. I pray that in all this we would honor Jesus. That though he condescended to us, that we would lift his name up above all others. And I pray that in Jesus' name.